Well, thank you very much for the invitation to come here and for the welcome. I was here three years ago, and I'm glad to hear that Scotland can export something to England, <laughs> that you've had three speakers from Scotland to help you out during these autumn lectures. The subject I was speaking on three years ago, I think, was Providence, and the subject I'm speaking on tonight is not far removed from that, and there might be a little overlap with regard to certain matters I'll bring before you. But as we look out on the world, there's one thing we can be certain of, and that is it's a world full of suffering. We've only probably seen our television screens today and another picture of horrors from Africa of those who are suffering through floods and other tragedies that have come upon them. And there's a lot of suffering in the world, and sometimes we can speak of it in terms of being awesome as we consider it, and as we look back on history and think of the terrible things that have been done in history, the Holocaust and so on. And the the man who said, the mass of men live lives of quiet desperation, wasn't far from the truth. And there's that great mass of suffering out there in the world, But perhaps what touches our hearts more than anything else is the inequity of the suffering. Some suffer in a disproportionate manner, and we see that in some of the third world countries in particular. We see them under dreadful political regimes and suffering as a result of that. And then natural disasters come upon them, followed by disease and so on, and so There's a great aggravation of their suffering and of their sorrow. And uh, we can see that sometimes perhaps in one family and perhaps we can think of a family known to us that has had a a horrendous amount of suffering in that family or perhaps even one individual has had so much suffering in their lives. And I think what touches most of us is when children suffer and they... We know what that presents to us when we see the suffering in children. Dr. Dobson, who works in a medical center or worked in a medical center in America, speaks about the terrifying experiences of his work there. Children born in pain, knowing nothing else. Some have mothers who are cocaine or heroin addicts and come into the world in desperate need of a fix. For days, the ward echoes with pitiful crying. Older children are brought in who have been humiliated, battered, and burned by their abusing parents. And that's something of the horrendous sufferings that are here in this present world. Now the question is, and many people ask the question, why does God allow these things to happen? That's a great question with men and women in the world in these days. Why does God allow these things to happen? Why does God not do something about it? Is there an answer? And of course we have our philosophers and those kind of people looking for an answer. And they find that in this area, Christianity is not perhaps giving that answer. The atheists, you could say, have a pretty good argument against Christianity. Some people have described the suffering in the world and the fact that we cannot give a 
a great answer to that suffering as the Achilles heel of Christianity. This is what John Stuart Mills wrote at one time. If God desires there to be evil in the world, then he is not good. If he does not desire there to be evil, yet evil exists, then he is not omnipotent. Thus, if God exists, God is either not loving or not all-powerful. Evil casts a shadow over God's love and power. And that's the case that is presented. And C.S. Lewis was an atheist before his conversion, and he said that during that time, why he did not believe in God, he would have pointed to the injustices of the world. He said, if you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit of indifference to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. And that's the case that is presented by the world outside, and they hold it against Christianity and hold it against God, that there's this this suffering in the world, and that nothing seems to be done about it, that God doesn't seem to uh, give the reason for the suffering, and God doesn't seem to do anything about the suffering. And then you find even religious people having a difficulty about the sufferings in the world. There was a rabbi in America called Harold Kushner, and he lost his son Aaron through a very rare disease. And in his grief, he asked the question, why did God allow this? And it led him to question his traditional Jewish faith. And so a rabbi, he came to believe that God could not have prevented the death of his son. He wrote, frankly, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who makes children suffer and die. And he wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And that book sold half a million copies in its hardback edition, and then it was printed in paperback, and it sold a million copies. And you can imagine, therefore, it found a sympathy amongst the reading public. But you see, this man, Harold Kushner, he leaves us with a limited God. And if you have a limited God, you have no God at all. You have no better than an idol. If you come to that conclusion that God is not omnipotent, if God is not all-powerful, then you do not have the sovereign God that we believe in, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also, of course, this book by Harold Kushner really gives us the impression that the world is populated by good people when bad things happen to good people. And the implication is that, generally speaking, people in the world are good. And, of course, Warren Wiersbe wrote a reply to that when bad things happen to God's people. And he was trying to, through that, give the Christian answer to that problem. Well, when when we turn to the Christian faith, and when we look at the Bible, 
Do we find an answer to the problem of suffering in the world? Do we find it in the Christian faith? Well, even when we take the Christian faith into account, and when we take the Christian perspective, we still are left with a great mystery, and much mystery. There's no magic formula presented in the scriptures that we can apply to the sufferings of the world. Even biblical characters could not find the answer to suffering. When you think of the great men of the Bible, men like Abram and Job and Joseph and Moses and David and Jeremiah and Paul, and you think of the horrendous sufferings in their lives, and Joseph for long couldn't understand what was happening in his life. Job never fully understood what was happening in his life. He came to certain conclusions. He came to a certain understanding, but he never came to realize fully what God was doing in his life and why he was going through such tremendous sufferings. And so therefore, we have to look for what certainties we can find. And the certainties we can find in Scripture are these. First of all, God is not the author of evil, and God is not the author of suffering. We can say categorically, if there was a spot of darkness in God, he would cease to be God. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And if there's one speck of evil in God, then he would cease to be God. So we can categorically say that God is not the author of evil. God did not originate evil and suffering. It did not come from God. And the second great certainty we can say is this. God has done something about the evil which involves the sufferings of his own son on the cross, in his life and in his death. And that's another great certainty. And the third great certainty is this. God will destroy the evil and bring an end to suffering as far as his creation is concerned. Perhaps you might have in your minds, what about the doctrine of hell and eternal suffering? We're not here tonight to go into that. I think that's a subject in itself. But as far as God's creation is concerned, the world that God has made and the creation that God has made and a new creation that he is bringing about, he is going to eliminate suffering. He's going to destroy evil. The Bible is about redemption. And we must always remember that. And even when we are considering creation, we must always remember that the Bible's focus is upon redemption. And Christian meaning with regard to suffering comes from the pattern of redemption demonstrated on the cross. There, ultimate evil was transformed into ultimate good despite the terrible process of pain and suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure. And that redemptive pattern that is seen in the cross, where evil is transformed into good, is the pattern that is set for the people of God. Our sufferings and the ultimate good that comes out of them are patterned upon the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And scripture makes abundantly clear that unless we suffer with him, we have no hope of being glorified with him. That's a pattern for the Christian. And Christianity is therefore very much involved in suffering. Suffering of one sort or another is a norm for the Christian life. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. And we have no place, and Scripture has no place, for the name-it-and-claim-it theology that would try and eliminate suffering and try and think that the Christian is going to smooth, have a smooth sail through this life, that he's going to be carried on, bed, on a bed of roses to heaven. That is not the Scripture view. And the Scripture view is that suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life and is also patterned on that life and suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as those who are in him, we are one with him in that. Well, I want to think then of the three areas of suffering that we as Christians are involved in in this world. The first area is the sufferings that we share with the world. The sufferings that we as Christians share with the world. And here again we assert biblical truth. We assert that God is sovereign in all his ways and in all his doings. That God is utterly and entirely good. That God created a universe that was good. He saw it was good. All the universe was good. All that he created. But then sin entered in by Satan, who already had fallen, and introduced sin into God's creation. Man listened to Satan. He rebelled against his maker. Man fell from the state in which he was created by sinning against God, and he became guilty and depraved and sinful. And as a consequence of that, he suffered the curse of God, as we find in Genesis chapter 3. That curse came upon mankind, it came upon the creation. They all suffered as a result of sin. And so what we've got to remember is that we're living in a fallen, sin-cursed universe. And that's the thing that we have to think of as Christians. And all humanity must share in the pain of that universe. Christians are no exceptions. We suffer like the rest of humanity in the pain that has come upon the creation. There is no one in one sense who is wholly innocent. We speak about innocence and we speak about innocence in children and so on. But all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no one without sin, without guilt. And pain and suffering are the inevitable consequences of being human, of being a man or being a woman. And that is what we must remember. The book of Job tells us, man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. And that's a commentary upon our society today and upon the whole world, that that is part and parcel of what we are as a result of the fall. And we've only got to live long enough to experience suffering. 
You know, some people may go through their lives without much suffering. They may not have many illnesses. They may not have many disasters. But sooner or later, suffering is going to come upon us all because we're all going to die. It is appointed unto man once to die. And that death is preceded in normal circumstances by a measure of suffering and of pain. It varies according to the person. But there's pain and there's suffering and that will come our way. But also, the environment that we live in is one that affects us in many ways. Because the natural disasters that take place in the world, they affect Christians as well as everybody else. They're involved in these things. The deformities that come into human life and limb, these things affect Christians. We're all involved in that. And so the environment affects us. And then an area that affects us very much is man's inhumanity to man. And we could go on all evening on speaking about that kind of thing. The child abuse, the violence, the rape, the murder, up into the Holocaust, and so on. And all the work that's going on in abortion and so on in these days. Man's inhumanity to man. And the, and the trouble and, and the suffering that man brings upon himself through promiscuity and so on, leading a sinful life and causing trouble to come on his body and so on. And all these things are involved in the sufferings that come to pass in this world. And then another big factor in the sufferings that we have with all of mankind, and that is the dom dominion given to Satan. And we must always remember that he is a prince of this world. And there's been dominion given to Satan. And when we see suffering in the world and sorrow and so on, we can ultimately say an enemy has done this. Remember the man who was sowing the wheat in his, in his field and then he found tears sowed there in the field. And what did he say? He says an enemy has done this. And when we see sin and suffering in the world, and all the sorrow is a consequence of it, we can say, an enemy has done this. Satan has done it. He has brought it into this creation, into this world. And you see, Satan is given a lot of scope by God. It was Satan that brought the afflictions upon Job. He, had, he did it with God's permission. He couldn't do it without God's permission. But Satan brought that horrendous skin trouble upon Job that leprosy or whatever it was in all its horrendousness God allowed Satan to afflict Job in his body Satan was the instrument for bringing that sickness to Job and we have also many New Testament examples of that remember how our Lord speaks about the woman who Satan has bound these 18 years and there's the example of the boy with the dumb and deaf spirit, deaf and dumb spirit, how Satan was possessing him, Satan was afflicting him. And even when you come to Paul's thorn in the flesh, what does he call it? He calls it the messenger of Satan. God had sent it, God intended it for Paul's good, but he describes it as a messenger of Satan. Satan was allowed 
to afflict Paul. And then there's that case of incest in Corinth, remember, and Paul is telling the Corinthian church to discipline this member and to deal with this member. And he says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of Christ. A disease will come upon him that will take him away because of what he has committed and the body of Christ will be blessed and purified through that. So all these things tell us that we're involved with a world that is sinful and a world that is in anguish and sorrow and suffering because of the fall. And we can't divorce ourselves from that suffering that comes upon all mankind. But in the second main thing we need to think about, and that is the sufferings that we share with Christ and because we are Christians. Now, there's no question of these sufferings being penal in any way. Christ was unique in that the sufferings he bore for us were penal sufferings, the sufferings that we deserve for our sin. And he atoned for these, these sins, and he suffered for our sins. But nevertheless, we suffer with him, and we suffer in him. Paul puts it well when he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 9, 29. And to you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. You see, Paul recognized that we live in an evil world and we live in a hostile world, a world that is hostile to God, hostile to Christ, and therefore hostile to the Christian. And the believer becomes like his master. As the world treated Christ in principle, so the world will treat us. Our Lord Jesus Christ made that abundantly clear. In this world ye shall have tribulation. Yes, they hated me, they will also hate you. They are treating, the world is treating us as it treated Jesus. Not only how we have sufferings on account of him, but sufferings instead of his. It is suffering he would have to endure if he were still on the earth, but which he hath bequeathed to the church to complete. Paul uses that very significant phrase in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, that you might fill up that which is behind of the sufferings of Christ. Sufferings of Christ, in a sense, in that sense, are not complete. Because Christ and his body are one. You can't separate Christ and his body. And Christ's body is suffering here upon earth. And therefore they are completing the sufferings of Christ in the hatred of the world coming upon Christ. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, how he longed to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And that's something we must get to know if we're Christians, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, because we suffer as he suffered, because the world hates us as it hates, hated him. Remember how Peter and John, in the early Acts of the Apostles, 
rejoiced because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for the name of Christ. And that is something that Christians should rejoice in. And if you ever want to look at a catalogue of Christian suffering for the gospel, look at the sufferings of the Apostle Paul. He lists them for us in different places in his epistles. And he could say to the church in Galatia, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, the marks of standing for Christ and all it, it meant for him and all it, that was implicated all that was involved in that suffering for Christ. I bear in my marks the body, in my body, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember how it is said in the book of Revelation when the elder asks, Who are they? Those arrayed in white robes. These are they, he says, who have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Yes, if you're a Christian, you will know tribulation, and in certain times, you will know great tribulation. And that's what we have in this world. And you look back over history, and you see the history of the early church, and the way they suffered at the hands of the Roman Emperor, and the treatment they was meted out to them, and being thrown to the lions, and tied to chariot wheels, and burnt alive, and so on. And there's a catalogue of the sufferings of the church of Jesus Christ, out of great tribulation. Our reformers, all they went through in order to hand the torch of truth on to us, Tyndall and Latimer and Ridley, these men who were willing to give their lives for the sake of Christ and did not mind the sufferings of this present time, and the Covenanters in Scotland, but you know it hasn't stopped. Those who, who, those who, who are experts in the subject, who, who, who compile statistics, tell us that there are more Christian martyrs in the world this century than in all the previous centuries put together. And we know tonight, as we meet here, our brethren in the Middle East and in China and in other parts of the world are suffering horrendous things for the sake of their loyalty to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no doubt that we suffer as Christians in this world, and that is a great part of our suffering. Whether it's just something you meet every day, day to day in your family, the ostracism in your office or in your place of work, or in, your, or, or in your college, or whatever it is, that is part of the suffering that the Christian experiences in his life here upon earth. But in the third main area of suffering that the Christian has is suffering, what we could say, from the hand of his father. And that is the discipline that the Christian suffers and endures in his life here upon earth. And what distinguishes that suffering from the general sufferings that we endure as part of the world, as part of the fallen world, and also, to a certain extent, to the sufferings we endure as Christians for Christ's sake, these sufferings are purposive, as we call it. There's a purpose in them. 
and they're given for a specific purpose. They include the sufferings we share with the world, but the great thing about these disciplined sufferings are that God has a great purpose in them. Let me list three of these uh, disciplined sufferings that we have in the New Testament or in the Bible as a whole. And the first one is chastisement. The suffering of chastisement. David, the psalmist's life, was full of many trials. He had the envy of his brethren. He was persecuted by Saul and so on. You could list all David's sufferings. And if you added them all up, they would be quite considerable. But great, some of David's greatest sufferings came from the fact that he sinned, that he committed adultery and murder. And although God forgave him, God's hand was upon his family from that day till he died. He would never forget that he had sinned. Yes, forgiven, but there are consequences even for the Christian if he sins, if he backslides. He will experience the wise chastisement of a loving father. Now, discipline is not popular in our day and age, whether it's in a family or in a school. And there's a whole wrong idea about love. It's a sentimental love. It's not a real love. Where there's real love in a, in a father, in a parent, that love will extend to discipline the child because we know it's for his or her good. And that's exactly what happens in the family of God. And we have these passages like Hebrews chapter 12, that tells us exactly what God is doing with us. He's chastising us, and it's painful. We are the fathers of our flesh who corrected us, says the writer. Yes, but God is doing the same, and, and, and our, our lives should really be patterned on what God is doing to his children, and that's a good argument for discipline and for correction. And he's doing it because he loves us. It's a mark of our legitimacy. We're real sons, says the writer, because we're being disciplined. We're being disciplined, and that's a mark that you're a child of God. Be alarmed if you're not being disciplined, if you're not being chastised, because then you're not a true son. And the writer says also, it's for our good. That's the end that God has in his chastisements. It's for our good that we might be partakers of his holiness. He's got an end in it. He's got a purpose in it to make us like himself, to make us like his firstborn son, partakers of his holiness. And so there's a chastisement discipline. But then also, secondly, there's a preventive discipline. And this is an area we don't have many examples in, but I believe that Paul's thorn in the flesh is an example of preventative discipline. Remember how Paul had these wonderful experiences. He was caught up to the third heaven, and he was really full of this wonderful thing that happened to him. And what was his danger? Well, that he would be exalted above measure, that he would give way to pride. And what did God do? He sent him this thorn in the flesh. Whatever it was, some say it was a physical illness, we don't know exactly. There's some indication that it was a physical illness. But anyway, it was also the messenger of Satan. 
to buffet him. But the whole purpose of it was to keep him from pride, to keep him from being exalted above measure, to, to keep him humble. And how necessary that is for ordinary Christians, and I think particularly for preachers and those who are Christian leaders. We need it. We need something in our lives to keep us humble. And God is using a preventive discipline. Maybe he's doing it in your life. Maybe he's doing it in my life. To keep us humble. We wonder why this is happening to us. It's like the crook in the lot. As Thomas Boston put it. Something that is there in your life or in your family. It won't go away. You've prayed about it like Paul did. But it remains there. And it's God's instrument to keep you humble. To keep you low. To keep you looking to him. And in a third area in the discipline from the hand of the Father, and that is fruit-bearing discipline. Fruit-bearing discipline. You know how it's said of the Lord Jesus Christ in Malachi chapter 3, He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. And that's a prophecy about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to be a purifier. And he said, it was said of him by John the Baptist, he shall baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what's a fire? It's a purifying fire. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. And then he himself has given us a picture of the Father in a John chapter 15. And he says, my father is a husbandman. And he says, every branch that beareth fruit, that's a Christian, he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. So what's he doing? He's pruning us. Like he prunes a tree in order that it might bear more fruit. And upon our lives, if we are Christians, there's a pruning knife. And a pruning life knife is not pleasant. It hurts. And God will do certain things in our lives. And God will send certain things into our lives. And these things will be intended to make us more fruitful. And how many of the saints we can think of, the horrendous sufferings they went through in their earliest days, or perhaps some of the great preachers of the word of God, how they were molded in their earliest days by suffering, and how they came through these times of suffering, and they became very fruitful Christians and very fruitful ministers and preachers of the word, and God's pruning knife was upon their lives. We think in Scotland of a man called Thomas Boston, and he lived and worked in a very obscure parish, two parishes, in fact, in the south of Scotland. And if you're looking for the places today, you could hardly find them. You'd pass through them before you almost noticed them. And he labored there with his wife ill, seven out of his ten or twelve children dying in childbirth or later, and going through these horrendous problems and difficulties and trials, contending for the truth in the church and so on, and yet here he is working away in this obscure parish, and he brings forth some of the great Christian classics that have been blessing Christians down through the centuries, Boston's fourfold state, the crook in the lot, and so on. A man who knew horrendous sufferings, but it made him a useful servant of Christ. And so there's the fruit-bearing discipline. 
And where would you bring in Job's sufferings? Where are Job's sufferings to be put? Well, Job's sufferings, as you will know, were the result of a conflict in the heavenlies. Remember how God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's not a man like him in the whole earth. A a righteous, God-fearing man. And Satan was allowed to afflict Job. But you see, Job remained true. Job's, Satan's word was that that Job was was serving God for what he could get out of it. Not because he loved God, but because God was good to him. But in the end, God proved right that Job was a righteous, God-fearing man. And it's not what he had that made him a Christian. It was because he loved God. God took away his goods. God took away his health. And yet he remained faithful to God. And yet at the end of the day, there was discipline in Job's life. There was fruit-bearing in Job's life. Remember how he said at the end of of his life, at the end of the, the book of Job, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye seeth thee, and I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There had to be a work done even in Job himself for the advancement of holiness and for the glory of God. Well, having outlined then the three areas in which the Christian suffers, let us consider for a few moments What attitude ought to be adopted by the Christian in the light of these sufferings? Well, the first thing is that it teaches us to live by faith. Thomas Boston, that man I've been talking about in The Crook in the Lot, he says, A just or right view of affliction is altogether necessary to a Christian deportment under them. That view is to be obtained only by faith. How are we going to react to our afflictions? How are we going to react to our sufferings? Well, we can only react in a proper way if we exercise faith. You see, there's nothing in the events that befall the child of God to distinguish him from someone who is not in that position. A child of God suffers a terminal illness. A child of God loses a child, and so on. How are you going to distinguish that child of God from anyone else in the world, from anyone else in your society, in your your community? How can you distinguish him? Because, you see, these things are happening to everybody. Some who are godly prosper. But some who are are godly also starve. Some who are ungodly prosper. But equally so, some who are ungodly starve. So these things are coming upon all people. And you see, to a large extent, God's dealings with us as Christians are hidden. There is a hidden God in the midst of our trials. You take the case of Joseph that man who was so influential in the life of uh, Israel or in the formation of Israel. You think of his entire life up until the time that he was reunited with his family. In many ways, 
You could look at that life as a shambles, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, sent into prison, and so on. And all these things, they didn't really make sense at the time that Joseph was going through them. And all these sufferings that are recounted for us in Hebrews 11 at the end of the chapter. You see, these people were never given a full explanation of what was happening to them. They had to live by faith. They had to live by faith. There was horrendous things said there about these people. Sawn asunder and so on for the sake of the truth. But they didn't know exactly what was happening to them. A full explanation was never given to them. They are to live by faith. And you see, some people tell us that if only we had faith when we are sick and the proper faith that we could be cured. And they say, if you have great faith, you can be cured. Now, this is what Paul Helm says. Often Christians are left to affirm that their lives are governed by divine providence while lacking the data to demonstrate this. You see, we we are in the dark as far as many providences are concerned. And that is part of the trial of our faith. That's what Peter speaks about. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold which perisheth. And as I said already, this question of sickness... This question of faith and sickness, well, Dr. Dunn, who has written very helpfully on this matter, says, I have an idea that for most of us the problem is not that we lack sufficient faith to be healed, but lack sufficient faith to remain sick, if that be God's will. It takes more faith to remain sick and to be reconciled to your sickness And to see it as part of the will of God. And to see what God's purpose in it is. Than for us actually to be healed. And so there's a great trial involved in our sufferings. Because we can't see at the time that we're going through them. Exactly what God intends in them. And so it presents us with that trial of faith. But then the second thing is. We must be submissive. God will not be put in the dock. You see, what? that's what the world does. The world puts God in the dock. And the world asks God all kinds of questions. And God is cross-examined. What right has he to send affliction on me? What right has he to do this? What right has he to send this into my life? And you see, they forget that we are creatures and that he is the creator. He is the creator and we are to submit to him. You see, Job only got a partial answer in his trial. Good man as he was, close to God as he was, God did not give him the full answer. And instead of us trying to find an answer from the narrow confines of our own world, far better for us, To lift our thoughts to God. How many think of God only in a time of calamity? Again, I was reading in this man, Dr. Dunn, about a situation that he encountered. 
He says, Not long ago a young man in our city was killed in a car crash. Neither he nor any of his family were Christians. The mortuary asked one of the ministers at our church to conduct a funeral service. The day before the funeral, he went to the family's home to discuss the service. As he prepared to leave, he asked the young man's mother if he could have a word of prayer with them. The mother became enraged and shouted at the minister, There'll be no praying in this house. God took my son from me. No, no praying in this house. And you know how ready people are in times of calamity to bring God into it. But they never talk about God in the times of blessing, in the times when God is giving things to them, when God is giving them a family, when God is giving them many blessings. God does not come into their thoughts. But then when things go wrong, God comes in and God is blamed for it. And that's part of the problem with us, that we acknowledge uh, God when uh, there's calamity and trouble upon us. And the question, and it's very helpfully answered by uh, Dr. Dunn, why me? And Warren Wiersbe, too, is very good on this subject. Why me? That's what people say. And that's the wrong question to ask. Because God is sovereign and we submit to God and to his ways. We don't cross-examine God and we say the real question is, what next? What next? What good is there in frustration? What good is there in complaining against a sovereign God? Don Carson speaks about a professor that he came across. And this man had been very influential in Christian work. He says that he had been mightily used in evangelism and church planting in three African nations. He was sometimes referred to as the Apostle to Tanzania. After he retired from missionary work in Africa, he set up a seminary in the United States. But when I met him, his suffering from Parkinson's disease was so advanced that he could no longer talk. He could communicate just barely by printing out block letters in a wavering hand. We talked about matters close to his heart. At least I did the talking and tried to ask most of my questions in a form where he could signal merely yes or no. In the short time I spent with him, I sensed a man of unshaken faith, and so I had the audacity to ask him how he was coping with his illness. After decades of immensely productive activity, how was he dealing with his own suffering, with the temptation to feel he was now useless and fruitless? He penned his answer twice before I could make it out. There is no future in frustration. There is no future in frustration. And a tendency to kick against the sovereignty of God and kick against the will of God will bring us nowhere. As creatures, we must submit to our Creator. We must submit to our sovereign God. And like Job himself said at the early stages of his time of suffering, he says, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? We're so ready to accept the good without thinking of God and without any reference to God. But when the evil comes, that's the problem. That's the difficulty. We cannot then submit in the same way to the sovereignty of God and acknowledge 
him. But submission is what is required of us as creatures. And then the third thing that we should notice in our attitude, and that is patience. We must exercise patience. We glory in tribulation, says Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 5, also knowing that tribulation works patience. You see, we're so ready in this age and in this generation to go for the instant. We want everything in an instant. We want everything ready-made. We want everything cut and dried. And we want God to act immediately to relieve our suffering and to relieve our pain. Any delay, we say, vitiates his promises because he has promised to do these things. But you see, God knows that delays are good for us. God knows that delays are not always bad. If you look at scripture again, how many years did Joseph wait until he discovered why he had to go through all these sufferings? He had to wait over 20 years before it became clear to him what purpose God had in his suffering. And Moses was 40 years in preparation. David had to endure all the persecution of Saul before he achieved what God intended for his life. And Job had to go through all that suffering in order to score a victory for God and for his cause. And remember how James puts it, Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job couldn't understand what was happening in his life. He couldn't point to any sin that was the cause of all this suffering. And his friends were not helping him in any way. But you see, he exercised patience. He kept faith in God. He maintained his love to God in the midst of all these things. And in the end, he saw the purpose of it all. And that's all the important thing. As far as a Christian is concerned, it's the ultimate ends that matter. It's not the short-term things. We may get short-term relief. We may devise means to save ourselves some trouble. But you see, God's purpose is to leave the trouble there until his ends are accomplished in it. And so we see some of the attitudes that we ought to exercise. Well, we're almost getting to the end. What are the benefits that are accrued to us because of these sufferings that we go through as Christians? Well, the first great benefit is this, that we come to know God in a better way. We see more of God's character and this is a subject that we must face up to and realize we speak about evil coming into the world. Well, the great Augustine said, God judged it better to bring good out of evil than, this, than, than to suffer no evil to exist. God permitted evil to bring good out of evil. And Paul Helm says, in the permission of moral evil lies the prospect of God's own character being revealed in ways but for evil it would not. 
You see, God has a purpose in overruling evil. And as he has a purpose in overruling evil, he has a purpose in our sufferings. And in the, the mystery of our sufferings, Ralph Erskine, one of our Scottish divines, explains something of God in the dark providences that come into our life and these sufferings that we can't understand. He says it is, to, it is to discover himself in a way suitable to himself and his glorious perfections and to show that his thoughts are not our thoughts nor his ways our ways. If he should work according to our thoughts and imaginations, how would it appear that he is Jehovah, a sovereign God that acts like himself? God owes us no explanations. We owe him impl implicit trust and obedience. It is not easy to trust God when he appears to be silent, as he was with Job, but trust we must. He is Jehovah who acts like himself. And that's what we discover in these times of suffering. I have heard thee, says Job, by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. He saw God in a different way. He saw God in a new way. God is not going to be manipulated by man. God is not going to be brought down to our needs. Like Kushner, his God became a limited God. And he said, I, could, I, can, I can worship such a God. But that's not what we are to do. We are to raise our faith and our knowledge and our understanding to the kind of God he really is. And then the second thing that it does for us is it produces godly character. It not only enables us to see more of God's character, but it produces in us godly character. Remember how Job said in the course of his sufferings, I know not the way that he takes... But when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that's the whole purpose in God's suffering. You see, the trial of our faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. When gold or any precious metal is purified, the purifier is able to look into it and see his image reflected in it. And surely that's exactly what God is doing in our lives. He's refining us by affliction, by suffering, so that he can see the image of his own son in his people. Because the ultimate destiny of every child of God is, as Romans 8 tells us, that we might be conformed to the image of his son. That's the great purpose that God has for us. Now, Dr. Don, Don Carson, who I mentioned on more than one occasion, is speaking about the teaching of John Wimber, who we've heard recently has passed on to glory, and he's speaking about his framework and the fact that he says because the kingdom of God has broken into this world, then we should expect that people would be cured of their diseases, and so on. And uh, Don Carson is saying, well, that's a good New Testament view, that when the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God came into this world, these things did happen. But he is saying 
that Wimber's framework is not large enough. He says he has tried to establish a theology of healing and power encounter without a theology of suffering. He has a theology of victory without an adequate theology of the cross. He has a theology of life without proper reflection on the place of death. He sees a triumph of the kingdom when sickness is overthrown, but cannot see the triumph of the kingdom when people are transformed in the midst of sickness. And that is the great faith. And that has been a faith that has been tried in days past and tested. The faith that is transformed and transforms a person in the midst of sickness. And how often we've seen it. We've seen people crippled with diseases. We've people, seen people suffering horrendously. And we've seen their faith triumphant. And we've seen their spirits glad and rejoicing. And you see, that's where the real triumph of the kingdom is concerned. Because the ultimate matter, the ultimate things that matter, is not our healing physically, but our character. You see, that's what's going to matter at the end of the day. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Lazarus died again. Many people were healed in the time of Jesus Christ, but they got sick again and they died. And so what matters in the end and what is the real triumph of the kingdom is not the healing of our bodies in this life, but the formation of character that's going to last to eternity. That's the real triumph. That's the real victory. And then the third thing we must say about uh, the effect of suffering, and that is that it fits us for glory. There's an inseparable link between suffering and glory. It was in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was through suffering that he entered his glory. And there's no share, says Paul there in that passage we read, in Romans 8, verse 17, there's no share in Christ's glory without a share in his suffering. There's a connection. And a Christian, being part of Christ, being in the body of Christ, being identified with Christ, has to go through suffering if he is going to inherit glory. There's no part, path to glory but the path of suffering. And that is the identification that we have with Christ and we have one with another. Well, just three words in application. Remember, we're not living in a safe world. We're not living in a world that will treat us well. We're living in a vulnerable... We're, we're living in a world in which we are very vulnerable. Ver vulnerable to all kinds of things, to sufferings that come upon our common humanity. And we must face up to these things. There's a great tendency, even amongst Christians, to run away from reality. And we cover up and so on. And we want to hide the unpleasant things of life. And we try to, 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 to sweep under the carpet the, the reality of disease and suffering and death. But we must face up to these things. We mustn't delude ourselves about these things. They're going to come our way. 
and they're going to come our way sooner or later. And we mustn't raise people's expectations about what can be done for them. We must be realistic about what can be done for suffering and for affliction and so on in this world. And we've got to face up to the reality of these things. You know how often it happens when someone becomes ill with a terminal illness. People are in a great flurry and they send the flowers and they send the cards and any interest wanes. And why is that? Because we can't cope with ongoing suffering. And it's at that very stage that these people need our hope, our help and our support. Not to abandon them. But you see, that's part of our difficulty that we're, we're trying to cover up these things. We don't want to face up to these things. But the way to face up to them is to tell people the real truth. That these things, if we are Christians, are working for our good. And what matters is the ultimate and the eternal effect of these things. It's the ultimate worthwhileness of our suffering. It's not the present. And when we think of it, what is our affliction? Remember how Paul puts it, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. It's momentary. It's passing. It's light. Worketh for us a far more exceeding than an eternal weight of glory. Yes, the sufferings we're passing through are not worthy to be compared, says Paul, with the glory that shall be revealed in us. There's the attitude we need to take up. When you think of the sufferings and when you think of the glory, what a weight of glory is awaiting the people of God and how light in comparison is the suffering that we've got to go through in this world. And when we know that these sufferings we are going through are working for our ultimate good. Robert Mary McChain, the saintly McChain, says, How soon you will find that everything in your history except sin has been for you. Every wave of trouble has been wafting you to the sunny shores of a sinless eternity. Everything in your life has been working for you and wafting you to the shores of a sinless eternity. And that Welsh hymn that was sung at the funeral of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the English translation from heavenly Jerusalem's towers, their path through the desert they trace, and every affliction they suffered redounds to the glory of grace. And that's the way we've got to look at it. When we look back from heaven, then we'll see things altogether different, just as Joseph did when he was reunited to his brethren, just as David did, just like many of the saints did. They were able to look back, and they could say everything was there for a purpose. Everything was there for the conformity to the image of Christ. Everything in my life, the dark things as well as the bright things, they all contributed to my ultimate good. We know, says Paul, that all things work together for good to them that love God. There was a lady who was very ill and there wasn't much that people could find to pray for her. 
And this man asked her, what can we pray for you? And this is what she requested. Pray that I want that I won't waste all this suffering. Pray that I won't waste all this suffering. And you know, we can so easily get discouraged by our sufferings. And we can faint, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. But we mustn't. Because we know that his purpose for us is a purpose of love. All things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And that's what we can rejoice in. And we can rejoice with Paul at the end of Romans chapter 8 and know that all these things, death and life and whatever it is, nothing shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even if we've got to go through martyrdom, even if we have to suffer the most horrendous sufferings, nothing will separate us from the love of God and nothing will separate us from that purpose that he has for us, the ultimate end to conform us to the image of his Son. Oh, that we can see everything in that light and be assured tonight that there's nothing excluded in that all things that work together for good to them that love God. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to have a, one minute for you to stretch your mind and your legs, and then we'll resume and have, take some comments and questions. We've got, uh, got a, some little time for anyone to perhaps share some comments or indeed uh, ask questions. So who would like to say something first? I'd like to tell you that is what I call the quiet business of evangelism, the quiet joy of evangelism. Who the home helps going to hear about Jesus through? And who are stressful doctors going to hear about Jesus through? And it is just as much a calling to suffer. And if I hadn't been where I am, I don't think I'd have met the people I've met. It's not all gloom and doom. And it's getting down to the nitty-gritty. I thoroughly enjoyed this lecture. It's been the most wonderful thing to my heart. It's been power good. It's been really smashing. And I, I really, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, you, 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 pain is not a thing I enjoy pain. But all I can tell you is what God gives you in it, no one can take away from you. Nobody. Thank you for that comment. Please. Yes, John. Do, do you think that it's always the case, however, that uh, uh, it takes more faith to remain sick than to be healed, as uh, J.D.D. Dunn uh, had to, to comment? Do you think that's always the case? <clears throat> well, I mean, have you got a promise in Scripture to plead that you will be healed from a sickness. Well, can I give you an example actually of, of someone who um, was healed. Uh, she was uh, addicted to heroin and she went back to her parents and her parents couldn't cope with having been healed 
And as a result, she went back to, to taking heroin again because the family just simply couldn't cope with, with the situation that she had been delivered. That was what was in my mind, that sometimes there's a situation where, you know, people tend to lie down under suffering. But sometimes it's not right for us always to submit to suffering, but sometimes there, there's, there's a case when one has to stand up. I believe very strongly that, you know, there is a power to heal, you know, in the kingdom of God in these days, and that through prayer people have been healed. I don't rule that out at all, but... Sometimes you might get a person who would have a special kind of faith that might be rewarded in a sense in healing. But I think as far as the generality of people are concerned, you know, and I think maybe this was illustrated in maybe some lives recently, that, you know, to remain sick and to actually submit to the will of God and to get good out of that requires a tremendous faith. And, I mean, not everyone is called upon, and I don't think there's any scriptural ground for us, you know, we can only be submissive to the will of God as far as healing is concerned, and we have nowhere in scripture to indicate that it's the right of any individual to be healed of a bodily disease. You know, we can pray to God for it, but we don't, we can't claim a promise, because there's no promise that you as an individual will be healed of a disease. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask in connection with the experience of, uh, of suffering and the mention of chastisement. Um, in connection with self-examination, can you give us some guidance as to uh, when we can be satisfied that if the Lord is seeking to teach us a particular lesson through that chastisement, that we have, uh, shall we say, learned that lesson and that the, uh, the continuing of the suffering is for some other purpose. In other, in other words, is there a point at which we can be satisfied that if the Lord has been dealing with us about a particular sin and chastisement, that that is, that that is delicate, and that perhaps we've moved into preventative or fruit bearing. Have you any views on that? Yes, I think specific uh, afflictions, you know, for chastisement really will only remain as long as, you know, it, it is necessary. I think Spurgeon's got a quote on that, that, you know, our afflictions as far as our chastisement are concerned will only be kept as long as we need to learn a lesson that God is intending in it. In it. But it's very difficult because of all the variety of sufferings we go through sometimes to know when that point comes, as you were saying, and perhaps God would might continue an aspect of that chastisement or discipline in order to make us more fruitful as well. So... It's a difficult line for us to, you know, cross, really. There's a gentleman over there with a question. I've nearly lost my courage now. <laughs> um, I was thinking, looking for something where there is spiritual suffering. Um, before I was converted, I lived a certain life, 
which I won't describe, and I enjoyed it. And I can't get to the position where uh, William Cowper said, I hate the sins which drove thee from my breast, for they constantly come up before me, and I enjoy them, and I'm so scared that I would enjoy them again in the thoughts that I've got. And I find it a great battle. Mm. That's suffering. Yeah, what's suffering? But it's a good job the battle is there because it shows that you're a child of God. I mean, I don't doubt that. <laughs> no, I mean it does. <laughs> if we were, if we weren't in a conflict, you know, we wouldn't uh, have any evidence that we have a child of our ch- children of God. But the very fact that you're battling against them, but nevertheless, that is a suffering for you. Are you talking about that as being a chastisement for past sins, or you? No. What I'm saying is the things that I enjoyed uh-huh. in my unconverted state yes. and the things that my wife enjoyed and she lived a gay life and mm-hmm. so on before we were converted mm-hmm. we have a great fear that sometimes we can enjoy them again in our thoughts yeah. and what they were sinful yeah. and why does God keep Reminding me of them, which happened 60 years ago. I'm not the devil. It's maybe the devil that's reminding you. It's the devil, probably, that's reminding you. <laughs> Neville, is this, a, is this a question or a comment? Neville, are you wanting to make a comment or a question? Fearfully dangerous subject for me to get involved with. Uh-huh. I have a sister who was courting a young man, very strong young man, very able young man, who became a poliomyelitic. She married him. She has a son who is a capable, healthy, able, intelligent son, and two twin sons, one of whom became a schizophrenic as he entered puberty and is seriously and most seriously and distressingly ill with schizophrenia. Now, um, my sister, God bless her, the youngest of four, has a persistent faith in the Saviour. And my heart beats for her. I can do absolutely nothing to help. And nor, it seems, can the medical profession do anything at all to cope with that fundamental and distressing mental illness. Mm-hmm. I cannot go to my sister and say anything that you have said to me tonight because I don't have the spiritual strength. Mm-hmm. How do I proceed as a Christian? to commit her to the Lord and her family. She lost her husband. Her husband died. And she's left to run a business with a capable son and twin sons, one of whom is apparently a completely incurable schizophrenic. Now, I'm not pleading misery or I'm not suggesting that that uh, that case is worse than anything else that's ever been seen or anything else. I mean, look at the Holocaust, for example, as as an example of what happened to the Lord's chosen earthly people. Um, I'm not pleading hard cheese. 
the remarkable thing is neither is she. Yeah. Now, what do I say to her? How do I say it? Mm. <clears throat> I, I put the question to you. Uh, forgive me, please. <laughs> well, there are certain questions, as I said, you know, that there are almost no answer to, really. I mean, we can only bring what, you know, we find from the Word of God and they in many cases it's not a question of going back and asking why it's what is the best way forward this man Dr. Dennett I was talking about he had a tragedy in that his son was suffering from a mental problem and there was a very fine balance and he was to take his medicine every day and I think I don't know if it was about that time or not he missed it for one day and because of that the imbalance he committed suicide you know, and a lot of good, spiritually speaking, has come out of that loss, you know. And you can say that even in that tragic situation, God has worked for good in that he has brought a more fruitful ministry out of this man who experienced that. And that often happens in the Christian things. But, you know, can you go back and ask why? There are th some things that we have to almost to be silent before, isn't there? The, the sufferings are so horrendous that we're silenced by them. And uh, all that we can ask is, what now? And wh how best can we bring some relief into that situation? I'm sure there's plenty human help in, in a situation, isn't there? Yes, there's a lot of, in, in this case mm. in, in, in which I'm concerned, there is a, an enormous amount of closeness in the family. There's yeah. a lot of help in the family. But then, you see, there is also, uh, in, in the Christian lady to whom I'm referring, uh, a stubborn streak of complete independence which says that, uh, I'll call, um, I can't expect others to commit their resource, time, mm. effort, validity mm. into, into my circumstances. This is my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think that that kind of suffering forces the people who are enduring it in on themselves yeah. and it makes it difficult to render help yeah. because it's difficult to accept yeah. by the sufferer. That's right, yeah. Um, and it's really an enormous test of faith yeah. on the, well, uh, uh, not in the, the families, <coughs> because there are several families involved in this particular tragic circumstance. Yeah. I don't want to wax eloquent on it for, for the rest of the evening. But what amazes me is that, that, that my sister can still meet with us and, and we can still laugh, we can still smile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find it amazing. Mm -hmm. I think if that had been my son, mm -hmm. my reaction would have been vastly different from yeah. hers. So in a way you could say that her reaction to the situation is a testimony in itself. And I think the First Lady who spoke about that, that's true, that suffering in the way we react to it, is a powerful tool in evangelism. You know, that if people see, look how these Christians suffer, and look how they cope with their sufferings, 
that's going to be a testimony to the grace of God and I'm sure that's a very powerful instrument in evangelism. Now, the fact that she herself is not insane uh-huh. is, is a testimony. Yeah. I don't think she, she, she enjoys bearing that testimony at all. No, well, no. But it's maybe one that she's called upon to, I mean, in the sovereignty of God. Well, let's move out to the family situation. This situation applies to thousands of people. And that, that particular mental malady, I mean, it, it, it's, it's worldwide. It afflicts the redeemed and the unregenerate. It... Uh, it, it's found all over, and there are other Christians perhaps all over the world with other similar uh, deep difficulties who have to bear, who, 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 who bear them. But some Christians crack up, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think someone wrote a book on why Christians crack, crack up. Yeah. I thought I knew the answers, <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's also, as I mentioned already, the problem of giving people unre- unrealistic expectations. If we're talking about, you know, if we're going to say to people, well, because the kingdom of God has come and these powers are available, that we can expect people to be healed. I mean, John Wimber himself said it in the way that he was looking at it. He had only a 2%, you know, success record. I mean, he, he's written that himself. And he, here's a man who's in that field and who's claiming to have these powers or to be able to do it. And yet, in his overall work, it's only a 2% success rate. There's a gentleman over here. I've been a Christian for 40 years, and I think through those 40 years, I've known a great measure of suffering even at this present time. But as I look back, I, I, I just content myself time and time again as I look back upon Abraham's life, who said, shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? Mm-hmm. I find that in, my, for, in our fallen states, we have, we, have a, we have a mind of a fallen state, and we, we, don't, we, we, we cannot comprehend the love and, and the mystery of, of God. And I think that your, your comment on the, the last of the reading, all things work together for good. It's as you look back over the years, you find that God's hand upon you, in chastening and everything else, mm-hmm. is in point of fact for your good and for the good of, for the good of his people, his church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. There's a lady over here. Yes. May I just say something perhaps to tip the balance down the other way? Mm-hmm. I found, like Billy Bray, that wonderful Cornishman in my sure. life, he's given me a salt spoon of vinegar mm-hmm. and a ladle of honey yeah. and, and you know it's been wonderful when I've been in trouble and I've called upon him in the day of trouble and he's delivered me <coughs> and, and I've had a healing you know on my spine yeah. and, and, and I feel the Lord is so wonderful yeah. but I can't understand how I can be like this and, and perhaps someone is suffering in starvation in Africa. Mm. I can't understand, but I only know my own experience that he's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. But he's wonderful in suffering too, because, I mean, we're to account it all joy when you fall into diverse trials yeah. and sufferings, because the real joy in a Christian life is out of these sufferings and trials and the hope that lies before the people of God. I mean, the world tries to have joy by, you know, 
forgetting about the sorrows and the troubles. They try to forget them and they try to bypass them. But the Christian is a realist in that he faces up to them and he finds joy even in the midst of them. And I think that's the real joy that we, we, we experience in life. And I didn't get time to emphasize that, but I would now emphasize Gentlemen of the far corner, and that will have to be the, the last question because our time is almost up. Without ending up as one of Job's comforters, is it possible to... Well, someone has commented that the best part of Job's comforters was when they sat with him for seven days in silence. And, <laughs> you know, very often when we go to a person, especially a person who is bereaved, the best thing we can do is sit and listen. You know, because you're bound to say something that's not right. You'll try to comfort them, but you'll use the wrong words. And uh, therefore, I think then when Job's comforters tried to comfort them, of course, they all had their own interpretation of what was wrong with the man. I mean, the first comforter said, well, it's because of some sin in your life, you know, that you, this, is, this is happening to you. And that's where we've got to be very careful, you know, how ready we are when... Perhaps we, there's someone we disagree with in the Christian church and someone who maybe goes off the rails slightly in the Christian church and, we, and then something happens to them. We say, that's a judgment of God on them. Now, it may be, but we've got to be careful because these things happen to people right across the board, as I said, to godly people as well as others. And therefore, we are not in a position to actually pinpoint what the cause or what the reason for this suffering is. I mean, it may be, as in the case of Job, which these comforters didn't realize, that it was Job because Job was righteous and God was holding him out on display as a righteous man and showing to Satan that he was a righteous man and that he wasn't in it for what he could get out of it. And that was the real reason for Job's sufferings. And there may be people, good Christian people, going through terrible sufferings and it is in order to show forth their Christian character and make them indeed a trophy of grace and a monument of God's work that the world and the Satan can see. In fact, our whole ultimate aim as a church is that we might be to the praise of the glory of his grace throughout the never-ending ages of eternity. And therefore, every Christian... You see, this is what people how people make mistakes. They say, well, they talk about Christian service and they say there's a calling to Christian service and we get a, a job in Christian work or we call to the Christian ministry and that's Christian service. Now, Job was serving God like he never did before. That time he was on the ash heap outside the city, the city dump where he was sitting. He was serving God there as sure as he was serving God at the city gate when he was a counsellor or whatever he was, doing God's will. And there have been many people on sick beds, and we can think of Joni and other people who, are, who have been horrendously injured and so on. And their very life is that triumph. 